Well, good morning. How are you? You know, it's Sunday morning. You're just so happy to be here. It's great. Hey, it is good to see you. I'm excited uh, to be up here this morning talking about the book of Matthew as we're kind of breaking that down and walking through that. Uh, This morning, we're going to be diving into chapter 2 of Matthew. And I'm going to, here in just a minute, I'm actually going to read through the entire chapter as we begin the process of breaking down uh, what Matthew wants us to see about the Savior of the world which is such a cool thing to think about. Uh, Sean taught last week, and if, if, you had a chance, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, you really need to. It was really powerful in the idea of just going, God works supernaturally. He speaks to us in dreams. And we see in, in, in Matthew 1, we see God speaking to Joseph through an angel and telling him what's about to happen. And we see the birth of the Savior of the world as it's ordained in the name that's given to this precious child that's God that will ultimately guide and lead each one of us. And, and you know, the story that we're going to dive into today, let me just give a little warning here for just a second, is with this time of year we have all kinds of Christmas stories, right? You hear it everywhere. You can watch them on TV. They're all told a little bit different, but they all have certain parts of it that kind of align with kind of tradition and the way things have always been told. But I'll just be honest and say, hey, some of if we go back to Scripture, doesn't quite fit with the way that, that the story of the birth of our Savior really works. So some of this won't uh, fit the, the traditional story that you guys are hearing this time of year. But the reality is, God had a plan since day one. And what we want to grab hold of most this morning is going, look at all these things that God ordained, God put into place. He spoke into existence, and then he met every single one of them. And it puts this question back on us, and here it is, do you really believe Do you at your core of who you are, your authentic self, void of anything else disrupting that, do you truly believe in the Savior Jesus Christ and what God wants to do in our lives? At the end of chapter 1, Joseph knew that the King of the Jews, the Savior, the Messiah, was going to be born. Now, other people obviously knew as well. Mary would be one of them, right? She was aware there was going to be a child that was going to be born. That child is directly from God. There were these people known as the wise men that knew. There was Jerusalem. There was Bethlehem. There was all these different uh, individuals that were aware from Nazareth. And there were all these people that knew what was about to happen with the Savior. And then ultimately, here it is. This passage hits on us too. We know. So what do we do with that? So this morning, as we go through this text, we're just going to land on each one of these different groups and then apply that to what that looks like through our lens of who we are. So let me read to you Matthew 2. And if you want, close your eyes and just listen. You can follow along. We'll have the NIV version up here. Or if you've got your Bible, you can open it up and follow along or your iPad or your, your iPhone. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, 
For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen, it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that, they had been, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity that were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then it was said, through the prophet Jeremiah, had been fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take this child's life are now dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in the dream, he withdrew to the distant land of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's so powerful to step back and just sit for a minute and hear the word of God. I don't know about you, but for me in my life, I've got to make more space and time to slow down and immerse myself in the word of God. I hear the stories, I, I hear the teachings, I'm like a podcast fanatic, I listen to everybody preaching all the time, I'm just soaking it in, but there is something amazing that happens when I slow down my own heart, and I sit with the word of God open, and I just read the very text of God. And why that's important is here in this chapter, Matthew knows the word, and Matthew's going to take us time and time again to the Old Testament so that we can see the very word of God that was spoken through the prophets and through the angels and through the power of the Holy Spirit at work, that God was always moving. Do you believe that God's moving like that for you today, right now? Do you really believe that if you go and you read the word of God and God stirs something in your spirit that he is actually truly moving in this exact moment and that he wants to do something for you, something with you? Do you believe that powerfully? Well, 
in the scripture, we have these wise men. We know very little about these wise men. We don't even know if there really were three of them, but for the love we've been told how many times there were three of them. And the reality is, most likely, there were not three of them. There would have been an entire caravan of them. Because this would have fit more within the cultural and the tradition of how people would have traveled back then. These magi would have had servants, they would have had cooks, and they would have had defenders or military leaders that would have traveled with them because traveling back then wasn't easy. You could easily be robbed or attacked while you were moving from one place to another. And so they would have traveled in this large caravan with tents and food and all the supplies that they would have needed. And why is that important to grasp? Because when they would have rolled into Jerusalem and into Bethlehem, people would have been like, what is going on? They are coming, this large group, and even the scripture tells us that they were troubled by this. And I pause for just a minute, and here's how I'd frame that is, what would you do if all of a sudden you woke up one day and you heard that Billy Graham, Matt Chandler, the Pope, everybody was coming to northwest Arkansas and they were following a star that told them to come here? I mean, in all honesty, would a small part of you kind of go, well, what up, what up, something's happening, something's going down? Like you would, right? Like, man, these people are like direct line to God. Like I'm going to pause for just a minute and go, what's happening? And that's what would have occurred culturally in this moment. These wise men coming into town and giving pause to everyone around them. Wise men really refers to these individuals that would have studied and been scholars. They would have looked at philosophy and, and, and studied the supernatural. And, and they, they were Gentiles that catch this for just a minute. Because this, this is part of that conviction back to the really do you believe in the power of God. They would have been religious mystics. They would have been constantly looking to see God's hand moving in the world and in nature and in culture. They would have known what that would look like. See, I think we've missed it to some degree that, that these wise men were astrologists and they just studied the stars and, and you know, there was secular, secularism within that. But the reality is no. They believed in science and they studied science. But here's why they believed and studied science. Because it showed them how God was moving. Oh, Do we have that same lens of science that as we study the world around us, it's teaching us about the way that God moves, the God who always has been, the God who always is, and the God who will always be, amen? Like that's what they were looking for. And these wise men were so close to knowing that and studying that because they were in a place in time because they came from the east where they would have had access to studying philosophy and religion. They would have looked at the Old Testament scrolls and they would have known that truth. I kind of picture it like this. They were in Babylon, which we don't know for sure, just knowing that they came from the east and they were placed in a place where there was some sort of religious studying institution that was probably established by Jewish individuals. And they studied there, but they themselves were Gentiles. They were Gentiles, but they could study in that place. It'd be much like if we looked at Harvard or Yale today in the United States. It was once established as a deeply religious institution, but has since moved away from that. But yet still we find people that go there and discover the Lord in their studies. Amen. That's what would have taken place here. And so they would have known that something was occurring, something big. And from that, they were told, go and follow the star to the Savior. So what is the star that they follow? I I pause on this for just a minute. It's easy just to think, well, it was just a star in the sky. 
But what exactly was that star? There's three theories that kind of exist to what the star is that the wise men would have grabbed hold of. The first one is this. It was just some sort of event like a a comet or a supernova or a conjunction of the the stars coming together and the the planets aligning that told them this is when this was going to occur and we are to follow that because this is the sign. That's one theory. A second theory would have said this. God used his supernatural, amazing ability to place a star that burned brighter than the sun, brighter than anything else, and they saw that, and the minute they saw it, they knew that the Savior of the world, the King of the Jews, was coming, and they were to follow that. That would be theory two. And theory three is this. And most commentators, most theologians really get behind this idea, is that the star is actually an angel, that was sent to the wise men to notify them that God is moving, that God is coming, that the time is here, not just near, but the time is here, and that this angel will become your guide and your protector as he shows you and takes you to the very place where the Savior of the world is to be born. Now, most of you probably pause for a minute and go, I've never heard that the star would actually be an angel. Here's what Scripture would teach us to kind of align with that. Throughout scripture, we see that angels are referred to as stars. We see this in Job 38, 7, Daniel 8, 10, and all throughout the book of Revelation, angels are literally referred to as stars. In the book of Daniel, if you ever study Daniel, by the way, it gets really complex once you get past the lion den stuff. Like, you're going to go, what's happening here? Right? He's having all these dreams and all these things occurring and these prophecies are taking place and it gets really complex to understand. Thank you, Josh, for not picking that for our text to walk through right now. But the reality is in that God is still moving. God is still telling us what's going to happen. In this one passage in Daniel 8, Daniel has a vision and it's of this ram and of this horned goat. And he starts talking about this horned goat and how some of these horns fall off of that goat and these other horns are growing back in its place. And he says this, Out of one of the horns, which started small but grew powerful in the south and to the east of the beautiful land, it grew until it reached all the way to the hosts of the heavens. And it threw some of the starry hosts down to earth and it trampled upon them, for it wanted to be the great commander of the armies." And it's this picture of the angels being called the starry hosts that get cast down from heaven. Angels, they have power. They're referred to as stars. They're seen throughout scripture as being stars. And angels have a great role. All throughout scripture, we see angels serving as a guide and as a protector. And probably one of the most profound ways of seeing that play out is if we go back and we study the story of the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. And as they're escaping the Egyptians' rule, all of a sudden God comes forth and he puts an angel to guide their path and he puts a cloud there. And in Exodus 14, we see this. When Moses was leading the Israelites away from Egypt, the Egyptians were chasing after them. And the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of the cloud also moved from the front and stood behind the Israelites, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And the angel in Scripture becomes this protector. And the same is true in this passage for the wise men. The angel will guide them to where they will go, and the angel then will ultimately protect them because we're going to learn about who wants to deceive them. And the last thing we would say, why would we maybe grab hold of an angelic being, an angel being used here as a star? 
is it really aligns with the narrative that Matthew's drawing us into here in Matthew 2. It fits within what we call the infant narrative theologically. The angel that announces to Joseph the virgin birth, that warns the magi not to return to Herod, that warns Joseph to flee to Egypt and then ultimately tells him to return to Israel and upon returning to Israel tells him to go to Nazareth. This angelic being becomes a guide. Now, does it really matter for us right now? Like, okay, it was a, a supernova or it was a comet or, hey, it was an angel. Do we have to really grab that? No, it, that, 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 that's not what's relevant. But here's what is relevant out of this. Do you believe? Do you believe that right now God would guide you with an angel? That you would see that light, that you would grab hold of that and you would trust it so much that you know that it would be your protector and your defender and that it would give you wisdom in your dreams? Do you believe That's the question I'm constantly asking myself, to be quite honest. But again, back to that reality I said in the beginning, I have to slow down enough and go, Lord, do I truly trust you that much? Do I believe in the supernatural power of you to move like that? Am I a religious mystic? What do you think? Are you there? Could you get there? Because Christmas season, what we're celebrating right now, requires that we get there. One of my closest friends, who I love with my whole heart, calls me every time of, of this year, of, of, of Christmas season. She calls me and goes, you still believing in Jesus? Kind of like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? Still believing? Every single time. It's got this really mocking tone to it. I know her heart, too. And I pause, and I think, you know what? I get it. From her perspective, there can be nothing supernatural. What do you think? Do you really believe that this is how... God would move. Well, there was somebody else at work here. This guy by the name of Herod the King. He was also called Herod the Great. He was deemed a king by the Roman Empire and he ruled from 34 to 4 BC. He was cruel. He was a narcissist. He made everything about him every chance he could. He truly wanted to be the king of the Jews. That was his quest and his desire. And his blinders went on and that guided every decision and every movement he went through was based on him building himself up time and time again. He was so cruel that at one point he thought that his wife was going to deceive him so he murdered her. He got wind that two of his brothers might cross him and their beliefs about what was occurring in culture, and so he murdered them. He was so evil and bad that Caesar Augustus literally said, I would rather be a pig in that dude's house than be one of his children. Whoa! For Caesar to say, I'd rather be a pig in that guy's house than be one of his children, says a lot about the darkness that existed in King Herod's heart. And as I said, he wanted to be the king of the Jews, but he couldn't. He himself was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. And if you go back and study the story of Esau, you understand that Esau was given the land of Edom. And why is that important? Because that land grew dark and hostile over time. It was where many great atrocities occurred. And eventually the Edomites were integrated with the Jewish people sometime in the 2nd B.C. century just after Herod the Great had died, and they had to be forcefully subdued, just as Herod himself had to be forcefully subdued. And over time, these individuals began to be ruled by a priest king by the name of Pontius Pilate. Genesis 25, 19 through 34 helps us understand this when we dive into the story of Jacob and Esau. 
Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies were jostling around inside of her. And she said, what is happening? Why is this happening to me? She inquired that of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, there are two nations in your womb. There are two people groups who are going to be separated. And one of them will be stronger than the other. And the eldest of them will serve the younger. It was a prophecy that was taking place even in her life then. When the time came for her to give birth, the twin boys came forth from the womb. The first first came out as a red, whole-bodied, fiery, hairy, garmented young man. And so they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out. He was hand was grabbing upon Esau's heel. And so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. And the boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. And Isaac, who had a great taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And this story begins in Scripture of teaching us about division. Division's already taken place because of sin, but we begin to see how that plants within families and how it begins this process of building division. And all throughout Scripture, we see darkness, we see Satan, we see the power of evil create division among us. I mean, even if you look at Christianity today, we're a pretty darn divided group of people. We divide from one another all the time. The example I use nonstop is if you go to Belfast, Ireland, and you stand there and you see the peace walls that are erected, not to divide different religions, but to divide Catholics and Protestants who claim to worship the same God, who understand many of the same scriptures, but they have to be divided because for the last 35 years, they've been killing one another. Division rules. And we see in this story of what's happening, the spiritual versus the worldly, we see this division taking place. And Herod's heart was a part of that division. He was never in tune with who he was, and as a result of that, everything about him became the world he was building for himself. If you are building a kingdom for yourself, you are dividing yourself not just from what God wants to do in your life, but you're dividing yourself from the people that you were designed to be in relationship with. If you're somebody that constantly is struggling in your interpersonal relationships, step back for just a minute and take an examination and go, have I been working my whole life to build my own kingdom for myself? Because if that's where you're at, you're going to miss what God ultimately wants to do in this. I love the story, the reality of who Leo Tolstoy was. And he has this quote, an arrogant person considers himself perfect. This is the chief harm of arrogance, for it interferes with a person's main task in life, which is becoming a better person. And if you know anything about Leo Tolstoy himself, he met the Lord in the 1800s as he was studying the Sermon on the Mount. And in studying the Sermon on the Mount, it drove him to this place of becoming a great pacifist. He was a writer who wrote many books, some of you probably somewhere along time in your life were required to read one to which you went out and got the footnotes for because who's going to read war and peace i mean really has anybody here actually really read it which by the way i'll be really impressed no how many of you have it as a doorstop somewhere anybody right i mean like i saw a hand go up but but that's the reality but but leo Tolstoy, as he studied the word of god he pulled himself into a place where he goes man this is what this is about as i study the sermon on the mount why is that important for me to narrate right now it's because in our working through Matthew, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it raises big questions for us in who we are as a body and what that looks like for us individually as we live with the Lord. But this quote hits who Herod the Great was. He was about himself. His arrogance made him think that he was perfect in his own right and he had nothing to learn from anyone else. And in that, he was all about establishing his own kingdom. He was married nine, ten times because he couldn't be in relationship with anybody else. He slaughtered people. He sought them out to murder them if anybody would raise into a position of power. There's a statement. I don't know how true you think it to be, but the idea is this. We are one or two decisions away from self-destruction. We are one or two decisions away from self-destruction. And oftentimes what I think could be at the core of that is when we're making decisions all about us that would lead to our own self-destruction and the destruction of others around us. As the story continues here, there are others that started to miss it too. Herod the Great obviously was the secularist in that. But there was this town called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, a, is designated as being a holy city. But Jerusalem was more than that. Jerusalem in in Scripture is telling us about the leadership of the culture during that time. They were literally called the central leadership. They were the ones that set out to say, we will defend the faith. We will let you know when the Savior arrives. We are the ones who will will notify everybody of what's coming. So they would have had insight. They would have known the Scriptures. But they began themselves to fear man more than they feared God. They wanted to maintain a harmonious relationship with King Herod. So in result of that, when the star appeared, when the angel was announcing the arrival of the Savior, they didn't even go to worship him. He would have been six miles away from them. And yet they did not go. See, they began to live their life out of fear. They began to live their life in relationship to how it looked with man, not how it looked with God. And so the story of Jerusalem helps us see in ourselves, are we living for the world? Are we living because of what man tells us in our fear of man? Or are we living according to what Scripture teaches us and what Scripture tells us? Jerusalem missed it. The leadership there missed it because they became about the man, not about who the king was. And they knew the Scriptures. They even quoted Micah, 5-2, which said, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They quoted this very scripture at the start of it. They knew it, but yet they did not go worship the king. The Gentiles, the wise men did, but the Jewish leaders of the day did not. And who was Bethlehem? What exactly was this small town or this small city? Bethlehem is first mentioned in scripture back in Genesis 35, just following the story of Esau and Jacob that we talked about a minute ago. And it's a story telling about Rachel's death. Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Rachel's going to die during childbirth. And in her dying breath, she names her child that's born Benoai, which means son of my sorrows. And as the boy is growing up, his father Jacob recognizes his son has much more to offer than this son of my sorrow. And so he renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Why is this important? Because Bethlehem becomes this place of sorrow. 
Jacob even erects a pillar there to represent the loss of his wife. That this is a, a place where there is weeping and there is loss. And in Isaiah 53, 3, the prophet even states of the coming Messiah, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man who would suffer and was familiar with pain. Like the one from whom people would hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in such low esteem. Bethlehem was held in such low esteem. And yet, like the name Benjamin that Jacob gives his son, to sit at the right hand, Jesus is referred to throughout scripture as sitting at the right hand of God. And if we look in Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his own right hand as the prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance in order to forgive their sins. See, what Satan wanted to cause pain with, what, what darkness wanted to do in the world, God goes, I've got a plan to redeem that. So much so, I'm going to start back here in Genesis, and as, as the story unfolds, I'm going to let you know what I'm going to do. Do you believe it? Every prophecy, every word spoken came true over time. In Bethlehem, by definition, the name of the city itself literally means house of bread. And if we remember what Jesus teaches us in John 6, it's that he is the bread of life. No one has seen the Father except for the one who has come from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes will have eternal life, for I am the bread of life, says Jesus. O little town of Bethlehem, you have much to offer in the story of how God will redeem the world. Joseph, at this time living there, was warned. And as a result of that, he took his wife and they fled to Egypt with Jesus. Which becomes a fulfillment of the prophecy in 11.1. Because we know that God says, I will have to call my son out of Egypt. So again, the prophet states this in Hosea, and it becomes, becomes true here in the Matthew narrative in chapter 2. And Herod was angry. He was so angry about what was occurring, and he was so angry at the fact that the wise men didn't come back to let him know where the Savior could be born because he wanted to manipulate and dupe them and go kill this child, that at this particular point in history, he orders that every child to or under be murdered. And I don't know if you've seen the, the movie, The Prince of Egypt. I've seen it many times having small children. And I always picture this scene of just thousands of infants being murdered. But that wouldn't have been the true story here. It probably would have been 20 or less children, one too many for sure. But Herod's anger enraged him so much that he would have children murdered in order that he could find whoever was going to be the savior or the king of the Jews and have that child murdered. And again, the story is fulfilling the prophecy from Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew is highlighting the hostility and darkness that existed in this period of time and the fact that there is this great light that was ordained since the beginning of time. It was our Savior would be arriving. See, in talking about the destruction and the hatred and the brokenness in Herod and, and, and Bethlehem and the leaders of Jerusalem. He's hitting on this idea that arrogance is used by the weak. All of these individuals were weak. They were weak in faith. They knew the truth but didn't believe in it. 
And in that, what we see is God is going to use the ultimate kindness, which demonstrates great strength. And in Scripture, four different times, we are reminded of the great kindness of our God and our Savior. And in his whole plan to redeem the world, he uses an infant as the Savior. And have you ever just held a child? It is the kindest, greatest moment when it's peaceful. Now, when it's screaming, it's not so much. But when it's, when it's just resting in your arms, there's a kindness that you feel overwhelming your spirit. And this is the picture of what Christmas is really all about. The infant savior of the world. Herod and his arrogance is going to die in 4 BC at the age of 69. A very painful death, we're told, throughout history from a disease that just ate at his body. Which studying psychology and studying unforgiveness in particular, I know that that breeds just just darkness in a body and literally physically begins to manifest itself. People with deep unforgiveness oftentimes talk about joint pain and stomach pain and the inability to sleep and nightmares and just all these things that would occur in their body. And Herod was no different. And Herod was so evil that upon his death, he wanted to leave a legacy of hatred and hurt. And so he ordered in his will that upon his death, that many of the religious leaders from Jerusalem would be murdered that very day so that in the city, everybody would mourn Nobody would be rejoicing. It's almost as if on his deathbed he had this moment of going, holy cow, when I die, everybody's going to celebrate because I'm a bad dude. But all of a sudden he goes, I know how to make them not celebrate. I'll kill off their leaders. And then everybody will be in a state of mourning. His sister-in-law literally stepped in and forwarded that plan. And as a result, she threw a massive funeral for him in which he was ordained in gold and stones and buried in this great, great funeral procession that took place. But his arrogance carried on. His arrogance carried on into his son who ascended into his place, Archelaus, who was just as wicked as his father. He was so wicked and so fearful as he'd watched his father all those years that he decided that if he ever saw an uprising of the Jewish or Gentile community, he would wipe them out. And sure enough, two years into his reign, there was a huge celebration at Passover, as we read about in the Old Testament, this coming together to celebrate God, to celebrate what God is going to do. And as a result of that, he feared what they were doing in that celebration. And so he sent in his armies and his troops and the cavalry, and he had these individuals that came to celebrate wiped out all 3,000 of them murdered and Caesar Augustus heard about this murderous thing that he had done and he himself again goes man I just went through this with his father I can't go through it again and so as a result he sends his army to go confront him and banish Archelaus and take away his position and Caesar Augustus in this moment realized I can't put another king in power Because a king will always want authority over everybody to have all the power. And so as a result, instead, I'll build a different system and I'll create these individuals called prefects. The second prefect that he put in place at this time in history was a man by the name of Pontius Pilate, which brings the whole story full circle for us. See, what man intends for evil what we do for our own kingdom to shore up our own lives. God says, I'm bigger than, I have a bigger plan. And as Joseph is bringing his family, as he's bringing the child out of Egypt and going back into the Holy Land, the angel warns him and tells him to go to Nazareth. 
This is a really important point to grab hold of. For Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. See, back then, they didn't have last names. You were identified by either the place you came from, by who your father was, or by what you had done that was significant. Recently, we were in Ethiopia, and while we were in Ethiopia, I sent my kids to school with the family that we were staying at. I wanted them to go have that experience of being in an Ethiopian school and truthfully being the only white children there. I wanted them to feel that. And so I sent them off to school, and my 12-year-old Tenny, who's in that back room over there, was angry as fire at me. I'm not going to understand. People are going to look at me as if I'm different. I'm like, that's exactly why you're going. Good, we got that part understood. They came back from school later that day, and I said, how was it today? And Solly, my little, you know, blonde-haired surfer boy, is like, it was, it was cool, Dad. You know what they did all day? I said, no, what did they do, son? He said, they just rubbed my head the whole day. I'm like, yeah, little blondie, like your hair's going to feel a little bit different. He told me in one of his classes that, that one of the teachers just sat there and did this while talking to the class. I'm like, that is awesome. I said, Tenny, how was it for you? And you know, he's still like the cool teenage boy, like, oh, I'm mad at you. And he said, you know, Dad, they just asked weird questions. I said, what, like about America, things you eat, things you do in America? He goes, no, not at all. They just kept asking me questions about like who you were and what your name was and what your name meant. I thought, son, that's tradition. That's culture. Who is your father? What does your father do? And in the same way back then, it would have looked the same way for Jesus. Who was Jesus? He was identified about where he came from, what he did for a living. Jesus the carpenter, Jesus from Nazareth. Now, this is not a compliment because throughout Scripture, we see that that those that are Nazarenes, those from Nazareth, are looked down upon. They're not great. And it fulfills the scripture from Psalm 22, 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their head at me. He who trusts in the Lord, let him say, Lord, rescue him. And let him deliver him since he delights in him. And we could go through other passages, but all the prophets before Jesus were letting us know that he was not well accepted into the world. He would come from a place of sorrow in Bethlehem. He would live in a place that was seen as being less than in Nazareth. And God's ultimate plan in that is, I am going to bring forth redemption from this very place. Not the warrior poet Savior of the world, riding in on a white horse with a, with a sword. But from an infant child who was ordained by God day after day, story after story, prophecy after prophecy. Do you believe it? Can you see it? And the last part of this is Jesus being a Nazarene comes from the word netzer, which literally means a branch or a shoot. And throughout scripture, we see this being a title given to the Savior. Isaiah 4.2, Jeremiah 23.5, Zechariah 3.8, Isaiah 11.1-5. The idea is that this individual, the Savior of the world, will be the branch to bring forth life to connect us to the Father. And what an amazing picture for all of us to grab hold of. And so this morning in closing, here's what I want to say. Three simple things. Number one is, do you believe it? Can you see it? How God ordained all this from the beginning and all the prophets throughout Scripture, which, by the way, note that in Matthew, when he talks about the prophecies, he says, the prophets, 
multiples before him, proclaiming what was going to happen, predicting every character along the way. And Jesus, the Savior, planned to be the King of the Jews, to be the Messiah, to be the ruler, to shepherd his people, and not by chance or happenstance. But it was ordained. And number two, maybe like Malcolm Gladwell, I like a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I listened to his podcast, Revisionist History. And he did this one teaching that kind of caught me off guard. It was something I'd never heard before. And, and I'm, I'll just own it here for a minute. I'm not a sports guy, so the analogy took me a second to get there, but I got there fast. And it was this, that every sport we play is one of two things. It's either a strong man sport or a weak man sport. And he says, for example, basketball is a strong man sport. Whoever's got the best superstar on their team will excel. They'll win the most. They'll conquer the most. That's what's going to happen. Soccer, on the other hand, is a weak man sport. If you have five rock stars and you have a sixth one that's horrible, five of them will make great passes, but that sixth one, if they just dump that ball along, it's for not all the previous five because now the ball's gone to the other team. And as I thought about this concept, strong man versus weak man, I, I couldn't help but pause for just a minute and go, my faith, our relationship with Jesus is a strong man sport. We only need Jesus He does not need me like I want to believe he needs me. He doesn't. He's got it. He invites me to be on his team. But he is the Savior that came as an infant, humble child. And I believe it. And as I close, I cannot help but go to this amazing place where the Savior is born in this humble village and he's raised in a city that was despised and he was hated by man and he was ignored by the priests and the religious leaders and he's eventually put to death. But he calls me today as I go into the word and I read scripture to live just as he did. And so I close with the words from Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you are united with Christ, hear these words this morning. If you have any comfort in his love, if there is any common sharing in the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain or conceit, but rather in humility, Value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of each and every one around you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Take on the mindset of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used for his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing. So he could take on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the savior of the world. This is who you worship. When you talk about Christmas, it's about this infant Savior coming to the world to fulfill all the prophecies that God the Father put into motion thousands of years in advance. That's your Savior. Do you believe it? 
Do you believe an angel will guide your steps today no matter how much pain or hurt or fear or doubt you have? Do you believe it? That's what I want us to think about on Christmas. And then in that, become just like that Savior that didn't build an arrogant kingdom for himself. He built a kingdom that was about all of us together. So Lord Jesus, just fall fall on each and every one of us, drawing us so close to you and to the cross and to the Father and into the heavenly throne room where we just worship you, Lord Jesus. Draw us there this holiday season. Help us not to get caught up in the minutia and monotony of life, but just to create moments in our everyday life where we just pause and we sit with your word and we begin to believe in your supernatural ability to move today. Come, Lord Jesus, give somebody a story of an angel guiding them today, Lord. We believe in that, so we invite it. So come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we want to be like you. We don't want to build arrogant kingdoms for ourselves. We want to be like the humble servant that you were. Embed in each and every one of our hearts that desire. Amen. As we close, I just encourage you, go to communion with one another. And just remind yourself how cool this season really is of what we get to celebrate. And as we look at the characters, the story we just walked through, maybe there's parts of that where we have to take stock and go, man, I'm sliding into that category. I don't want to live like that. And the last part of that is, do you believe, do you really, really believe that God will move like that in your life? Amen.